Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about gender and the Trinity. And joining me to do that, we have Amber Bowen, who is a PhD candidate in philosophy at Aberdeen University. How's it going, Amber? Doing very well. And we have Dr. Chris Porter, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at Trinity College, Melbourne. How's it going, Chris? Good. Thanks, John. And we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Madison Pierce, who is Assistant Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and the author of Divine Discourse in the Epistle to the Hebrews with Cambridge University Press. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Pierce. Thanks for having me. It's a blast to be here. So how about we begin by hearing a little bit about your doctoral research, uh, your volume on Divine Discourse, and how that might be relevant for what we want to talk about today with gender and the Trinity. So, I, I mean, the most of what I'm doing in that volume isn't directly related to questions of gender. You know, basically I'm looking at spoken quotations of scripture in Hebrews. There are some spoken by the father, some spoken by the son, and some spoken by the spirit. And um, the father and son tend to speak to one another. And then the spirit sort of um, either relays that or, you know, speaks directly in application to the contemporary audience. And so um, y'all or we are the, the addressees for the spirit. Um, as, as far as gender goes, though, I mean, it is interesting that especially in the first couple of chapters of Hebrews, you know, I think of Hebrews as being um, a, a letter in three parts. And I typically when I diagram the first part, think of it as a discussion of the household of God. And so in that, we definitely have a clear presentation of Jesus as one who is son and by implication, God as one who is father, both of Jesus and then in Hebrews 2 of Jesus's brothers and sisters, um, us or the other um, sons and daughters of God. And so um, there's a lot of relational imagery that comes in there. Um, And yeah, as far as gender goes, I mean, that definitely um, uses a clear masculine image um, or uh, masculine metaphor to portray um, the first and second persons of the Trinity. And we do see that consistent throughout Hebrews. Um, So I'll I'll stop there, but that's, I think, the point of connection. I find it interesting in uh, in Hebrews and in a lot of the uh, discussions about the household of God, uh, that there's this shift towards uh, describing the entirety of the household as sons. So uh, some of my work has been on Romans 7 and the hoestasia, the adoption that we get as, and it is explicitly sons. We have the, 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 the term son, hoios, in, in, the, in, the, in the phrase. For, for me, there's theological reasons there because there's an inheritance. And in the ancient world, the paterfamilial inheritance only went to the sons. But how do you see that happening out um, where, the, where gender isn't specified, but it seems that everyone becomes singularly gendered and it, it, it doesn't necessarily flatten out the, um, the household of God, but it polarizes the household of God into being a single gender. So we have the, um, the oikos of God. We have, you know, Jesus as the son um, within it and all of that. But I, I mean, the household, at least in the ancient world, and uh, I'm reminded of this frequently, the house is the domain of the women. <laughs> um, we do definitely have the paterfamilias, but if we're thinking of the kind of spheres of influence and all of that, the, that, that home space is the space where women would be operating more freely. And so I think that's a way that this imagery is actually empowering. If we're thinking about family or thinking about household and all of that, then there, even though the language, which I think is inclusive, even though it is technically, you know, um, is uh, masculine, but the sphere and the imagery is either neutral or even maybe, you know, tending towards feminine. Um, But I, I guess I would push back a little bit because I do think that to an extent, the idea of adoption is expanded to uh, to women in the New Testament. I mean, I think in like, is it 2 Corinthians 6, where there's the quotation from 2 Samuel 7, and Paul actually adds that this is, um, I will make them sons and daughters. And so I think there that, um, you know, there are places where we see this idea that it's not just sons. Um, and it's certainly not just the firstborn, um, but it's everyone who will inherit in this way. And the other thing is that in Hebrews, it's um, that everybody is not just, they're not just sons. 
Um, but the author pushes this a step further. It's that, you know, in Hebrews one, we see that Jesus is portrayed as the firstborn, um, you know, the prototokos, I think I'm going to get the accent messed up there, but, um, then in, uh, in Hebrews 12, we see that it's the assembly of the firstborn. And so the kind of radical message and gift of Hebrews is that Jesus shares with us firstborn status and, you know, on all of the assembly, they are all the firstborn. Um, so I think that that's, you know, beautiful. And again, inclusive, at least from my perspective. So the family of God language has this inclusive dynamic, but the sort of language about God is gendered. And could you say a bit more about that, especially as there is a concern to maybe try not to use father-son language or even probably less sort of controversially to no longer use uh, masculine pronouns when referring to God, but to, to use language like God's self? Yeah, I, I understand the impulse because I think that I, I do not think that God is a gendered being, um, certainly. So I would think that all language about God that is gendered, um, so father-son language, for example, is all metaphorical. And so that is the choice. And, you know, I, maybe this is just a classic, like old school way of thinking of it. I think that it's probably because of the context, you know, within which scripture is written that they happen to use masculine imagery. Um, I certainly appreciate those accounts that, um, that push in another direction. I also appreciate accounts that really um, emphasize the uh, fem uh, sorry, feminine dimension of the spirit, for example. But we also have, you know, the spirit is the one that, um, or the person that people are kind of more okay with portraying in feminine terms, even, you know, more consistently. Um, but of course, as many have reminded us, there are clear feminine images for the father as well, and even the son. Um, and so I think that, or the father and the son, sorry, I, I use that language, you know, just to kind of distinguish among the persons, but, um, but obviously that is complicated even in this, especially in this discussion. Uh, but nevertheless, so the first and second persons of the Trinity are both portrayed with feminine imagery. And so I think that that allows for us to cont continue to conceive of them um, as those who are represented in masculine terms, but who are not necessarily masculine, uh, apart from the incarnate son himself. So, Dr. Pierce, what would you say to people who struggle with the idea that at least the way that scripture portrays what happens when we're justified or we're made righteous by God um, or before God is that we're considered sons. How do you see that in terms of what it means to be women who are also made righteous before God? What, what is that dynamic there? And what does it mean for us to, to be sons, but daughters? Yeah, I think that that is a good question. Um, I have considerable difficulty with that. Um, and I actually think that it is a point of, of serious inconsistency among um, really um, conservative brothers and sisters who tell us that it's totally fine to be woman and to be subservient and all of that. That's how God created you. Congratulations. But at some point you're gonna be made man or you're going to be reconceived of as man. If it's such good news for us to be as we are, then why do we have to be transformed? I guess that's part of it. And so, you know, again, I think that there is a, there's a radical message of, you know, of these things not mattering as much in the New Testament, that these barriers are not, or that these um, uh, dynamics are not barriers to our salvation, to our access to God, to our access to the benefits of salvation, et cetera. So I don't, I don't love the idea that that um, inheritance is is only male. And yeah, maybe Chris can can push back here, but I I don't I don't see that um, in Hebrews especially. But yeah, I'm thinking too how just as we'll say yes, we're made sons of God, and that scripture uses that language. But scripture also talks about how we are made part of the bride of Christ. So we are all brought into Christ's bride, which is obviously a very feminine metaphor. Um, and the story of scripture being ultimately Christ's spousal love for his bride. And that's something that men participate in as well. So I think that's so interesting how scripture just flips those dynamics in, in all these different ways. 
Yeah, I think that um, Cindy Westfall in her book, Paul and Gender, um, I think that her chapter on stereotypes is so great because she shows how um, stereotypes are applied to both of the genders and how those that the good news of the gospel, it, you know, it allows us to inhabit those spaces and to set aside stereo, those stereotypes and um, to allow the the best things about being female and male to to be things that we can all enjoy. I, I don't, yeah, maybe I'm overstating that, but the, I think that's where I'm at today. <laughs> Thanks, Madison. I, I, I don't think I would push back on the expansion of uh, adoption or expansion of the house incorporation of the household being both male and female. I think that is one of the wonderful parts of and and probably quite transgressive parts of what Paul is saying for the ancient world. Uh, that even in a, such a patriarchal culture, even women have an inheritance as as women. This is just a wonderful thing uh, that is being part of the church. The one thing I, I, I would I do find interesting though is when you're talking about the spirit as many um, scholars would locate a lot of the femininity in the spirit and ignore it in the, the father and the son. I wonder if they would then turn to the spirit and say, oh, it's, it's okay, spirit. One day you'll become like the son. One day you'll have agency. <laughs> and and I, I, do, I do see this a little bit in some students who, who wonder about third article theology and you know, what's the, how do you define the person of the spirit? Because the spirit seems to only do things at the behest of the father and the son, which I, I think sometimes it, it it plays into this gendered stereotyping of the spirit. Mm. We can it's okay. We can put all of our gendered stereotypes within the Trinity over onto the spirit, but we can look as if we are egalitarian about this because we're including women within the Trinity or, or a, f- a female persona within the Trinity. I'm interested in your reflections on on that dynamic. As, for me, as a, as a male looking on, I find this really weird. But I I think as a <laughs> I, I can see if I wasn't, if I was a female, I would find it not just weird, but offensive. I think a lot of the time. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. That also um, makes me think of, so, um, you know, I teach uh, Johannine literature and uh, there's the portrayal of the spirit as the paracletos or the, you know, the paraclete. And in one uh, popular commentary, you know, there's this discourse about the, uh, how we shouldn't translate paraclete as helper because it has subservient and you know diminished kind of um associations and uh you know clearly that's because of eve um but the the funny thing is that i actually had a student assignment that that is never explicit it never says eve in that commentary ever it just says it has associations with this and this and this and i had a student assignment that says it it like it took it it read between the lines it wrote something like the spirit is uh, can't be trans, you know, can't be translated in this way because that's subservient and because of Eve and like all of that. It was like, oh, you're bringing in some assumptions here. I mean, it's the same assumptions, but we're like going a step further. So, anyways, uh, absolutely, and that's where it comes up for me in teaching the Hanan literature is uh, that people, uh, students, look at uh, the father-son relationship, which is so big in in the fourth gospel, and then the spirit is they go, oh. It's just kind of tacked on at the end. So therefore, the femininity mm-hmm. of the spirit is, 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 and they read a complementarian dynamic into this dynamic that is described within the father-son and then paraclete relationship. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it allows, it's, it almost allows the denigration of femininity because it's the, it's the relegation mm-hmm. of the spirit. And of course, in uh, broader discourse, it's not merely the father-son relationship to the spirit. It's also the father-son relationship itself. And there, of course, is this, I guess, movement. I don't know what to really call it, but uh, the the idea of eternal functional subordination, this idea that the son is eternally functionally subordinate. And this is kind of co-opted by a lot of complementarians as a way to basically say the way that women and men relate to each other in in the church and and at home uh, is going to be modeled after this eternally functionally subordinate relationship between the father and the son. Dr. Pierce, could you tell us a little bit more about this position, EFS, as it's often uh, known as, and uh, some some problems with this. Uh, and perhaps maybe for some of our listeners who might think, well, isn't that kind of what we see in some passages in the New Testament? Maybe maybe you could help, help uh, kind of uh, demystify some of this stuff for us. 
So at its core, EFS, it's also, um, so eternal functional subordination, or sometimes is represented as E-R-A-S. I think there are some others that I may be missing, but that is the eternal relations of authority and submission, which I think is Bruce Ware's preference. But um, there it's that the son is eternally subordinate to the father. That So when we are thinking about, so I'll move to the exegetical question a little bit you know, more quickly to, to illustrate this. But when we're thinking about texts that portray the relationship between the father and, and the son, and we see something that looks like obedience or submission or, yeah, authority uh, between the two, we are typically looking at the human person of Christ in subordination to the father, that he is, submits to the will of the father. Um, the, with this, this is that the divine person of the son is also submitting to the father and not just in his humanity or for the time that he is human because of course in his humanity the divine and human persons of christ are not 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 so easily separated in fact they can't be separated at all but nevertheless um that this isn't for a time but this is actually eternal so there is always a hierarchy within the trinity and that creates some really serious issues at least from my perspective in terms of divine unity in particular, because how can the persons be of one essence? How can the persons be of one will um, when they have some kind of relationship of authority and submission? And so um, the way that that gets pulled into the gender conversation is that um, the modern version of complementarianism asserts that women and men are ontologically equal but functionally different, or that functionally there's a hierarchy. And I mean, the, it used to be the case that we could say, well, can you show me anywhere else in the entire world where <laughs> that works? Like, can you give me another analogy where this relationship that you're describing actually plays out? Well, they found one and they uh, decided to and I'm obviously being cheeky here. They revise their theology to make it so. Um, so I think that it is motivated by a gender, or a, sorry, a theology of gender. Um, but I think that it is incredibly misguided to allow our understandings of anthropology um, to skew our understandings of theology. Thanks, Madison. I think we can see, or at least my students see, EFS or functional subordination in various ways, fairly clearly in the fourth gospel, uh, because you do have that father-son dynamic there. But I'm interested, what other texts are commonly uh, brought up to support EFS and also to then also engage with this controversy? Um, I, I think one of them that regularly comes up for, for some students I talk to is 1 Corinthians 11, uh, because it is so transgressive and also, oh, it's transgressive to our modern society anyway. and, and also. Um, 1 Timothy, uh, where you see the classic proof text for subordination there. Yeah. Um, I mean, especially if we're talking about subordination, if we're talking about subordination between man and woman, then yeah, 1 Timothy 2 is the place to go. Um, you know, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man or teacher and or have authority over a man. And that is related to some of the, the kind of classic EFS text. Um, because if we see in gender dynamics, the language about man as head, you know, obviously sometimes husband as head and then woman or wife as body or sorry, you know, it's more, a, you know, the head over the woman or wife. Um, then First Corinthians 11 is definitely a, a place to go. Um, so it's, it's um, 11, three in particular, you know, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So here we have Christ is in authority over men. Check. We're cool with that. Man is in authority over women. A lot of people are quite all right with that. And But then we get to that God is the head of Christ. And if these the first two relationships, authority is no problem. Then when we get to the third one, then we have to wonder, is authority no problem here also um, or is something else going on? 
many people do point to this text as a clear indication of EFS because um, we do see this hierarchical relationship. We also don't necessarily see any clear indication that this is referring to the incarnation, but that reading is the typical one for more um, classic readings. Um, so, or those who oppose EFS is perhaps the more charitable way of framing that. So they would say that this is only, uh, this only pertains to the human Christ or the hum human um, second person. Another or another option that I've proposed, and this is in the book Trinity Without Hierarchy that um, Mike Bird and Scott Harrower edited, is that I think it's possible that here the language is not that of authority necessarily, but is is more of preeminence or kind of station. Um, and I draw the parallel between um, the language here and language that we see in early Christianity about order or taxes. Um, so it's one thing to say that, you know, God is, or father is best, um, son is better, and spirit is good. Um, it's another thing to say that father is first, son is second, spirit is third. Um, because this could be just, this is a silly analogy, but this is when we arrived in the queue at the bus stop and lined up or whatever. It doesn't have to do anything with authority, but it's just about order. Yeah, I'll, I'll stop for a second to see if y'all ha have questions about, about this, but um, that's the general argument there. So that passage continues on, and it's, it's such a culturally embedded passage about heads and heads being uncovered and heads being shaved. I'm interested in, from your perspective, how does this seem to work from, from the, that interaction of, of a, such an embedded cultural analogy or an embedded cultural example of hair being cut off and things like that? You know, are we disentangling this from our view of the Trinity? Or are we, if we want to read it all together, are we actually importing a lot of these cultural frameworks back into the Trinity? Uh, because in, t in teaching and engaging with students outside of a Western context, I think it comes back to uh, some of these, the ways that the, these texts have been interpreted are particularly Western. Uh, they are particularly, uh, to use the framework, they're particularly white. For many people in Africa, having your head shaved is a is an honourable thing uh, because it it actually um, helps with proper family running and things like that. I mean, yeah, I think that um, even if uh, even if my reading is correct and there's a lack of authority between man and woman, um, even if mutuality um, is the best way to understand the relationship between man and woman and woman and man, obviously. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that we can still make a, a, the correlation between man, the relationship between women and men and the father and son. There's still a considerable breakdown. There, there is no analogy that corresponds to the son as, or sorry, the, that God as one being and three persons. It just doesn't work. And so that's why we, sh we shouldn't be reading in this way. Um, as far as the, the cultural um, barriers that come here, I mean, yeah, this passage is so difficult to understand. And, that's, and the hair or lack of hair or veils or whatever, I mean, this is something that has been interpreted in a hundred different ways. And so really, I, I mean, this is, you know, expanding to hermeneutics more broadly, but I have assumptions about what the New Testament says about how people should relate to one another. And one of my major overarching assumptions is that the New Testament portrays mutuality. I do think that the, the New Testament asks us, us, all of us, to submit to one another. I think that the New Testament asks us to honor one, all of us to honor one another. So I think that that does portray us putting ourselves in a lower station than everyone else. So that's hierarchy, but it's voluntary hierarchy. But because I read the New Testament in terms of mutuality, and I see in 1 Corinthians, for example, the passage like 1 Corinthians 7, which I think has a radical message for women in terms of their authority over their own bodies, that they can say to their husband, uh, your body is my body. Um, and even in this passage that, you know, men come from women and women come from men, like there's clear, uh, you know, necessity for one another here. So I use that 
as a lens to expect that some of these difficult cultural things, uh, if, if I see something that seems contrary to that big lens, then it's something I need to look into a little bit more. And so, yeah, that's all that to say that um, I have, a, I have certain assumptions that I bring to the table. And um, I think that the cultural difficulty is, is definitely an important consideration, especially in messages like this and some other ones. So, yeah. I always thought, I was always very confused from a philosophical perspective about the whole concept of being ontologically uh, equal, but functionally separate or different. Because even if you say that the son is functionally subordinate to the father and you just put that functional phrase modifier in there, it's still an is statement. The son is functionally subordinate to the father. It's, it's still an ontological statement that you're making. So even say stating the son is functionally subordinate to the father, you're still making an ontological claim about the son, regardless of what kind of modifiers you're throwing in there. So I've always been super confused. And I thought maybe I'm just not really getting what they're saying <laughs> because that doesn't, it doesn't square to me philosophically. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have thoughts about that. I don't except to say just amen, Amber. <laughs> Amber, I think you raise a really interesting point there because I, I wonder, in the, especially in the West, we, we tend to struggle with identity or personal identity, which isn't role-based. Uh, so what I do is who I am. Um, and we, we make that transference of function into ontology. And talking to students outside of the Western context, this sort of immutability of function into, and, and it's, it's complete collapsing into ontology is just something that is often so foreign to them. They, they go, well, no, my identity is based in my family or my identity is based in where I grew up or, or who I am is defined for me by, by the will of, um, of Allah or the will of my parents. A lot of the time in, in Asian culture, especially the, 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 it, it's, it's still a, a, a paterfamilial culture. It is, you know, you're, your parents and actually a, a mutter familial culture. Your mother is the one who defines who, who, what you're going to do. You're only going to play piano. You're not allowed to do anything else. You're going to be a lawyer. But in terms of identity construction, the function that you do isn't a big part of who you are. Uh, and I wonder if then EFS only actually really works in a Western context where we've bought that lie. But I'm thinking that it really makes sense then because if you think about our gender differences in terms of different functions, then uh, you're going to talk about what it means to be a man or a woman in terms of roles and regulations, right? It's things that you do. It's ways that you act. It's things that you put on, ways that you interact, things that I'm responsible for versus things you're responsible for, which is a, a very brittle um, way of thinking about what it means to be a gendered being in the world, in my opinion. Yeah. I find for students, this uh, struggle when we start then talking about the church as the bride of Christ, uh, because that then means that there is a function of the church, male and female, as a whole oikos, which is female. Uh, and it tends, it, it's all, inevitably only male students who struggle with this, um, but they struggle with how, how can they express a femininity, which is part of being a bride. And so if it is functional in the way that we define our ontology. Yeah, I think that goes back to the, the kind of conversation about um, stereotypes and like Westfall's work and all of that. And I mean, you know, the, what is it? And um, I know it's in first Corinthians, so I can't remember what chapter where he's like, you know, the thing translated as like man up or, you know, or put on some armor and all of that. Like, I don't find that particularly exciting. Like you know, like grab a sword, whatever, like, eh, I mean, that's not imagery that resonates with me. I'm not particularly, you know, averse to such contexts, but uh, I'm not doing that on a particularly regular basis, praise God. But yeah, so we, and I think that because we've reinforced these stereotypes, particularly in a lot of our theological contexts, we've made it impossible to have a robust understanding of the theology. I mean, my goodness, I, you know, when I'm teaching through Paul and he's talking about, you know, um, 
bearing them as children or the birth pains that, you know, that the world is experiencing and all of that. I mean, my students have been hearing that from male voices their entire lives. I mean, Paul's a male voice, you know, also, but, uh, you know, one of them, one of them told me, like, I've never heard a woman talk about a passage about childbirth especially not a woman who's had a child. And that really, that was something for me. Like, I, yes, I know what it's like to be wishing that the child would come out of my body like to be so pregnant that you're just like, is this it? No, it's not it. But my goodness, I'm in pain. And, and so it's just, it offers something. But yeah, but it is something that we have to translate for our brothers that they can experience. And if we have a diminished idea of what, a, you know, to actually land the plane on this, if we have a diminished idea of what a bride is, if we only think of her as someone who is subservient, who is meaningless apart from, you know, these things that she does, then of course, the men in our context and the women for that matter, aren't going to enjoy that imagery. But if we think about a bride as being defined by the person that she loves, at least when she's thought of as a bride, I mean, that's, you know, that empowers us. Yeah. I remember when, when, when we had our second child, we had, my wife had lots of Braxton Hicks, uh, which are the pre-contractions that aren't labor, but look like it. And I remember I was, I think, I think I was preaching on the birth pains and, and uh, I remember thinking, oh, it just adds an entire dimension that most men probably wouldn't get either because, you know, they haven't had children uh, or because you don't discuss these sort of things. Uh, my wife's a doctor. So we discuss, that is medical doctor. Uh, we discuss all sorts of things around the kitchen table, which uh, the majority of families wouldn't, would never discuss. And so I, I really appreciated that when, when I heard it, but I would think that's even more powerful and and it is even more powerful hearing it from you, Madison, uh, as someone who has had that experience herself and and is a a biblical scholar. Well, I have another question for you, Madison, just regarding Trinity and gender. I know a lot of people who, particularly feminist theologians, who really struggle with the idea of talking about God as father. And so, but they like talking about God or referring to God as mother. So I'm wondering, especially what you were saying before about God not necessarily being a gendered being, is it just as appropriate for us to talk about God as mother, as father? How does the way that scripture speaks about God impact that? What's your view? So I think that the like standard line is that God has talked about mothering, but is never called mother. I, I, I think that's true. And so the question is like whether we can work from passages that portray God as mother and and then, you know, kind of move beyond that to say that that's appropriate. And so if we were to refer to God as mother, then that would be metaphorical language, very similar to the metaphorical language that we apply to God when we refer to him as father. And so in one sense, I, I actually, I don't think it's beyond the implications of the biblical text to say this person does in scripture is portrayed as doing all the things that a mother does, having children or bearing children physically, um, caring for them, nursing them, uh, you know, protecting them under her wing, um, you know, like a mother bird, like all these different things. So, you know, can we say here, God is mother. I'm okay with that. Um, I understand why um, it might not be wise if we're yielding to the counsel of scripture to begin to only refer to God as mother, because that is not the dominant image that, that in a sense, it actually diminishes the difficulty that our biblical text can cause to people who encounter it. And so from my perspective, I would like to portray the text as it stands um, for a lot of different reasons, but one of those is, and I, I've heard this discourse come from our brothers and sisters um, who are ethnic minorities and who struggle with other kinds of passages as well, that when we take away the things that are hard for us, um, then we actually diminish the people who have labored and struggled and had the, and have, um, you know, had these difficult encounters with it before. And so I would rather help people to read the text as it is and to talk to them about what it's communicating in its time and now to our time 
um, and to use this language. So I, that's a long answer. So yes, um, but you know, obviously, but um, I would also like to continue to refer to God more frequently as Father. I think one of the things that might pop up in people's minds as we uh, listen to you talk about this is the shack and and how God the Father is there portrayed as a black woman. Wonder if you have any thoughts that might be tailored to the shack. Oh yeah, that's super helpful. I mean, it's been a minute since I've thought about the shacks. <laughs> <laughs> These may not be as polished as they might have been. Um, but yeah, I think that I think that's actually one of the reasons that that we shouldn't completely write off the shack is because it 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 does, it challenges our really stereotypical assumptions about about what it means to be God. Because we're thinking of this like you know, stoic, very male and typically very white. God, even though God is none of those things. Um, and so to offer in a lot of ways, the opposite portrait of this very caring, um, black woman, uh, you know, caring for her children, being like clearly very imminent, um, that presents a challenge and yeah, that that's a, an anemic portrait of God too. Like we, that's not the only way that we should represent God is as one who is, you know, right here with us, caring for us and mothering. But that is, those are things that are good and true about God. Being a good mother is something that we learn from God, I think. So I am very curious to know what your experience has been as a, a woman professor, a female Bible scholar, for that matter, uh, particularly in light of what you were saying about childbirth and uh, the way that women can uniquely translate some of these experiences that are mentioned in scripture to men, to our brothers. It just speaks about the importance of having both genders involved in um, the, the conversation about scripture and understanding scripture and applying scripture and those sorts of things. So I, I'm very encouraged to see uh, women like you who are about biblical scholars who are teaching. And I'm, I'm curious to know what your experience has been with that. What are some unique, uh, some things that you've enjoyed, some unique blessings, and then maybe some challenges that you faced as well. I mean, I think I would start with some of the challenges in a sense, because it relates to what we were talking about earlier. I mean, one of the reasons that I hate the supposed good news that, that we become male or that we um, get portrayed as sons is because it's only been in the last few years when I've really been able to say, like, I am glad that God like put me in this skin that, cause I, you know, I knew a long, long time ago that I was called to do this, that to be a, you know, a professor of Bible. And a lot of people told me that I couldn't do it because I was female. And I kind of wondered if that wouldn't be a lot better if I weren't and all of that. And um, so it's, it's been a lot of me like rationalizing why I'm not flawed because I'm a female Bible professor and coming to terms with that. And so, um, you know, obviously this is super experiential, but uh, please don't undo that good work. <laughs> like, let it be good news that we are female. Um, so I think that that's part of it. And that relates to some of the, the good that comes from this. I feel a little bit funny saying like, it's good that I'm a, a Bible professor, but uh, theoretically having female Bible professors is good um, because yeah, we, we are able to offer insights in, on, on the text that are not otherwise available to our male counterparts. Um, and some of that comes in um, experiences that are distinctly uh, female or are limited to, you know, some, some uh, women. And some of that comes from the way that we've been conditioned by society that, you know, there are ways that I can talk to my students and can care for them and read the text with them and stuff that y'all can't, uh, you know, John and Chris, like, it's just not available to you. Like, because of the, the things that the world has taught us about what's supposedly feminine and supposedly masculine, I can operate in a way that you can't without it, it feeling different. And I think that's good. Um, so we offer a compliment. We offer the two portraits of God to our students, like the or two sides of God, the masculine and the feminine, as we read the text and bring those things together. 
Um, but there is also, there's something about representation, um, you know, for, for my students to see that, um, or for my female students to see that they can do what they would like, um, or they can do what God has called them to do, that they can be, you know, a professor, um, or another kind of vocational minister. Um, I, I think it's good for my male students to see that, uh, that this is a, a viable vocation for their sisters or wives or daughters or friends or peers or whatever, and that there are ways of, you know, faithfully occupying that space. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's been rough. I mean, I've, I've, I can tell some, um, humorous stories, I suppose, if that would be helpful, but, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, I'm glad to be here, but it's not, not been an easy road, I guess. I heard it said that comedy is just tragedy plus time. <laughs> yeah, that feels right. <laughs> You can laugh about it later on, but it feels like tragedy in the moment. I, I appreciate your response on, on many different levels. One, one being, I, I've heard the case made for having women involved in the academy or in academic institutions because you know, we have lots of female students here. And so it's really good for our female students to have someone to look up to and to have mentoring type relationships with. But I love what you said, or you brought this up, that it's also good for the male students too. It's, it's important for them that there's something that they can gain in the same way that I think thinking of myself back in my college and master, undergrad and master's years, it was important for me to have male teachers and to have the male voice speaking into my life, that there was something particularly edifying when my male professors saw gifts in me and encouraged those things, you know? And it was also particularly edifying when other female mentors saw those things and, and spoke into my life as well. And I can imagine the same is true for a male student as well. So yes, I think models, representation is so crucial. I mean, I remember the first time I saw a serious female philosopher whose work, whose faith was very much integrated into her work, who produced really creative insights that brought so much to the table and built up the church at the same time. I remember when I saw that for the first time in my life. And I, at the event, I don't think I actually paid attention to anything she was saying because my jaw was on the floor because I just kept thinking, that's what it looks like. And that was a huge moment for me in my life. So I, I can imagine that there's many women at Trinity who are experiencing that same thing with you um, and also ways that the guys are being benefited as well. I, yeah, I was 25 before I ever heard a woman preach, I, I like in person. And it was, it was a transformative experience for me. I mean, it was a great sermon and all of that, but I mean, it was, it was just her being there. That meant something to me. And it, you know, it's only been, I think it was four months ago that I actually got to preach my first like Sunday sermon, which is something I never imagined for myself. I mean, I grew up in a certain denomination that has some concerns with that sort of thing. So even, even being a professor and even empowering my female students to, to preach and become pastors and all of that, it was still not something that I was able to imagine for myself because of the way that I'd grown up and everything. And so seeing that model, it was only just the start of, of being able to, to, yeah, have that play out. Okay, so aside from being uh, women in the Theological Academy, I know that we have one other thing in common, you and I, and that is that we are both Enneagram fours. <laughs> so um, I've only met one other woman in the Academy who is an Enneagram four. Um, so this is really fun. I'm wondering uh, what that's like for you to be, what it's like to be a four in the Academy as a woman. <laughs> and um, what are things that, are just fun about that. And in what ways is that just kind of uniquely contribute as well? Yeah, oh, good question. So, um, I mean, a lot of what we focused on today are ways that, um, that women are distinctive and especially that I have felt um, distinctive or even alienated at times. And I definitely think that that is heightened for me as a four because the kind of spectrum that we kind of tend on is like, I'm super special or 
I am so weird. Like how in the world? <laughs> and uh, that's, that kind of works. I mean, so anecdotally, it was like, whenever I read the description of an Enneagram four, I was like, oh gosh, this is me. And I looked, I thought back to these projects that we had to do in high school and um, all of the quotes and everything, like we had to do these things that like represented us. And mine was like super weird. And everyone had all these like quotes that were like from movies or whatever. And mine was from the animals. And it was, um, uh, I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh, please. Or, oh, Lord, uh, please don't let me be misunderstood. That was my quote from, <laughs> from the animals. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh. But anyways. Um, but I think another way that this has kind of come out is um, I've got all of these threes around me, uh, threes and fives, and um, stereotypically, our precious brothers and sisters who are threes and fives um, have an ability to kind of like channel and to go and to set aside some uh, emotion and things like that, obviously stereotyping here. And um, I can't do that. It can be a really bad thing where I'm like sitting at my desk and I'm like, this is the craziest thing I've ever experienced. And I cannot, I cannot write a single word until I deal with this crazy interpretation or this absurd thing that's happening in the world or whatever. But the value also that it's been is that um, I can't not advocate and like, and watch things that are like playing out and that need to be dealt with and stuff. And I, I don't, I definitely don't want to make this sound like this is something that's like, I'm awesome at like being there for people and whatever. It's like, I, if I could change this, <laughs> it's not, it's not necessarily always a good thing. Uh, I'm, I can be a little bit of a busybody because of this, um, but I think it's really valuable. And so I think with anything in the Enneagram, it's about kind of figuring out like, you know, uh, when you're at your best, like, like, how can you use who you are as an asset? And when you're at your worst, like, how can you try to work around the way that God has made you? And so, or the way that you are, or what, you know, however you want to frame that. So I don't know. I mean, have you had similar experiences or it, am I being super weird again? You know, every four is unique in, in, and of themselves too. <laughs> That's just the unicorn. Yeah. That's right. I have a five wing, so that kind of changes some dynamics with it. But I think that um, I part of me almost wonders if my four is what has allowed me to kind of make it through my educational process where I was the only woman 80% of the time because <laughs> I was kind of okay with being different. It didn't crush me the fact that I was, you know, I wasn't constantly falling in these existential crises of like, there's not other people who look like me here. I can kind of occupy that space fairly well. I think one thing that fours offer uniquely is we have an eye for beauty mm -hmm. and we don't want something to just be right, which is like the five, right? We don't want it to just be done, which is the three. We want it to be beautiful and we want it to be meaningful. Um, and so typically when I pursue publishing projects or whatever. It's, it's not because I just want to accomplish all these things. And it's also not because I want to like, just be right over everybody. Although I have this five wings of, you know, the, the philosopher who wants to argue well, you know, but it's, I will really feel passionately about something and feel like this is going to contribute to truth, goodness, and beauty in the world. <laughs> so that tends to be my, my motivation. I don't know if that's true for you. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I tend to take things on. I mean, I take on more than I should, but if I take on a project, especially when I should really shouldn't take on a project, it's not because there's a pressure about like adding lines to my CV or whatever. It's like, that's a thing I want to be a part of. Like, I, I feel like I should be a part of that. Um, that's important. And I, I mean, the um, Trinity of Thought hierarchy book that, that I contributed to is, is, is one of those examples where, okay, like this is a conversation about a really serious issue that's becoming way too popular. Like, I'd love to contribute to that. I don't know that I should have been running on Paul, uh, but yeah, I try to make it work. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, think that, I think that that's true for me as well. And I think, um, you know, uh, I've got plenty of ways where I, I think fours tend towards ones 
um, when they're healthy. And so I think that that also kind of comes in, like there is definitely like a, a kind of justice bent. I think y'all are probably hearing that in some of the other stuff that I'm saying here. Um, so yeah, I think I, I don't, I, I don't know what my wing is actually. I kind of, I feel like I kind of go in both directions, like three and five. And I think that kind of melds, but the four and the one are the like aspects of myself that I see most strongly since yeah. And Enneagram so complicated, uh, that it was like, there's wings and then like tendencies and all of that. But anyways. Yeah. I was going to say as, as a, a three, we do have the tendency to be so driven and cold sometimes. And especially when we're not operating particularly healthily, let me say it's, it's great to have fours around, uh, because you uh, bring reflection and light and, and warmth into the, into an environment, which you can otherwise be rather emotionally cold so thank you and thanks for getting us past our feelings and <laughs> and making us do the work <laughs> against stereotypes but well as a seven i would like to you're say, a seven yes i'm a seven I, i'm married to a seven. Oh, brilliant brilliant yeah <laughs> <laughs> well as as a seven i would like to say that this conversation has been a ton of fun uh, uh and sadly i think we'll have to uh bring it to a close but uh dr pierce it has been so wonderful having you on and chatting about gender and trinity trinitarian discourse and just want to thank you for joining us today oh thank you it's my pleasure If you'd like more engagement of Theology, Culture, and Discipleship from The Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on The Two Cities Podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.